our diaries feel like they're in other people's control and it's never ending. Yet it gives us a false sense of progress because we're deleting things and replying to things. And so we feel good, but really it's kind of, it's a trick. Like we're not really achieving that much when we're in our inbox. Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for female founders and founders-to-be. If you're smart, savvy and ambitious, then Lady Brain, you are in the right place. Get ready for a dose of inspo, hard-hitting truths and actionable insights. Strap in. How do the most successful people in the world manage their time, energy and relationships? That is what we're discussing with today's guest, Dr. Amantha Imber. She is an organizational psychologist and the founder of behavioral science consultancy Inventium, which helps corporates and small businesses become more productive. She is also the host of the How I Work podcast, which has over three and a half million downloads. And on this show, she interviews incredibly successful people across business, the arts, academia, and media to uncover their working behaviors and the practical things that they do day-to-day that contribute to that success. She's also just released an epic book called TimeWise, which takes all of these insights and frameworks from her podcast and shares them to help you dominate your day. In this episode, you'll discover what work smarter, not harder actually means and learn some really practical tips about how to manage your schedule, prioritize your time, manage your energy and get more fulfillment from your day. And just a quick note on this episode, Caitlin was unwell when we recorded, so it's just me again, Anna, on the mic. Well, I'm an organizational psychologist. I think professionally, that's what I identify with, even though I wear many hats, like I'm a a business founder slash owner, although not CEO. I stepped down from the CEO role a few years ago. Um, I am a researcher. I speak, do keynote speaking. I podcast, I write, but really I'm an organizational psychologist. I'm, as my mum described it, I, I'm like a, a, like a detective of the human mind. Oh, I love that. That's an amazing (laughs) way of putting it. (laughs) So let's talk about the genesis of the book, TimeWise. Where did it come from? It came from the podcast that I've been hosting for about four years now called How I Work. And on that show, I interview some of the world's most successful people, be they entrepreneurs, CEOs, musicians, artists, all sorts of people. And with the hypothesis that they've achieved so much with their lives, yet we've all got the same amount of hours in the day, surely they're using their time differently to the rest of us mere mortals. And that's what I wanted to explore. And sure enough, they are. But like every episode, and you know, there've been several hundred of them, I I get like great tips from every episode. And for me, I like I have to listen to it because I'm I'm doing the podcast. I'm the host. But for someone to to dive in and go like I want your best tips for how I can you know work better, work smarter, you know think more wisely about the time that I have. Like you'd have to work back through hundreds of hours of back catalogue to get that. So I thought it makes sense as a book format for me to pull out my favorite tips that I've heard on the show and put them into 
uh, a really practical, easy to digest book that you can dip in and out of depending on what is the area of your life that you are trying to think about improving, particularly when it comes to work. And you cover a lot of topics in the book. You obviously cover managing your time, but you also cover goal set- setting and kind of habit creation, managing your energy, relationships. And I was sort of thinking about, broadly speaking, what this book is about. And I was thinking, oh, it's kind of a productivity book, but it's actually not really because in my mind, productivity is about efficiency and output. And there's a lot in there about how to get into creative flow, how to build connections with people. So it's more broad. How do you classify the book? Like, how do you see it? Yeah, I, yeah, it's funny you say that because I don't see it as a productivity book and I didn't want it to be a productivity book because I feel like even though I love productivity porn and I'm a sucker for an article <laughs> that says like, you know, what, what the top CEOs all do before 5am in oh the morning, God, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. All that. Um, it's like the world doesn't need more of that. So this really is about thinking, that time is finite and what can we do to use that time well um, from, you know, sure from like how we can do things more efficiently, but also, you know, how, how can we form better and deeper connections with the time that we have? How can we manage our energy better so we're not like flailing around in the afternoons and kind of wasting that time? So it really is, um, you know, about how you can use time better not only to achieve more, but to be happier in the process. Mm. There's a really amazing quote in the book that resonated with me. I was like, oh my God, you're speaking my language. You said, I wanted to stop being a slave to my inbox. I wanted to end every workday feeling that glorious sense of progress you experience when you get meaningful work done instead of being left thinking, what did I do today? Yes. <laughs> and it really is the answer to that. <laughs> it, it it absolutely is. I mean, isn't that just the worst feeling where you've oh had a day of work and you know it's been busy because you've barely stopped to eat or go to the bathroom and then when your partner or a friend or a family member says, so how was work? What did you do today? It's like, I, I can't remember. I don't know. And that's terrible. Like that's a whole day that has just gone gone somewhere into the back of your mind, never to be thought of again. Like that's a waste of time. Yeah. And you speak about it being a reactive, being in a reactive state. So sort of responding to emails, responding to requests rather than proactively um, and intentionally managing your time, which I think is such an, it's such an easy place to land in. Like it's so easy. As soon as you open the inbox, it's like you're on the back foot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I do write about that concept a bit in time-wise. There's one particular section which comes from John Zeratsky, who is uh, he used to work at Google Ventures, and he's um, you know a bit a bit of a nerd, like when you know in the world of sort of time management and productivity. And something that he has done is he's created a calendar template. So he he was sick of playing defense with his work days and he wanted to you know to use a sporting analogy play offense instead and so he thought about like what what does his ideal day look like like what are the blocks of time what would he be doing when would he be doing certain activities in the day to match his natural energy levels or chronotype and 
he literally created a calendar template in Google Calendar and he tries to, when he's proactively thinking about his week and booking in the chunks of work or the meetings or the social events or occasions that will make up his week, he tries to make it fit as closely as he can to that calendar template. And I love that as an idea because so often our diaries feel like they're they're in other people's control and someone else is controlling our time because it is like, you know, whenever we go into our inbox, it is like playing that like whack-a-mole game that we've all probably yeah. <laughs> played at, you know, fairgrounds and stuff and it's never ending. Uh, yet it gives us a false sense of progress because we're deleting things and replying to things. And so we feel good, but really it's kind of, it's a trick. Like we're not really achieving that much when we're in our inbox. That's generally not what most of us are paid for to be good at email. I don't think that's in too many people's job descriptions. <laughs> so for me, I definitely like, I love John's advice there. And I like when I look at my calendar for the week, I color code different things so I can, you know, like my, my podcast interviews are a different color to keynote speeches, which are a different color to um, my exercise blocks, which I diarize. Uh, and it gives me a good sense as to what's my week looking like? And more importantly, does how I'm using my time this week align with my values and what's important to me? Uh, and I think that's a really important question to ask yourself when you look at your calendar for, you know, the upcoming week. Yeah. What's that? There's a saying, it's like, show me your calendar and I'll show you your priorities. Mm, or something like that, that, which, yeah, it is really true. It's like if something's in your calendar, then you're, you obviously value it. I mean, if you block out exercise, you obviously value exercise. If you spend your entire life working, like, you know, that's kind of what you value. You spoke about the importance of pruning the bullshit out of your calendar. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, so so this, um, this tip comes from uh, Ashutosh Priyadashi, who is the co-founder of Sansama, which is software that helps you manage your time better and more proactively and really think about your priorities and are they being reflected in your diary and an exercise that he will go through. Like, so he's got really clear goals in terms of what he's trying to achieve as a founder of a fast growing tech company over in San Francisco. And he, uh, he looks at his diary and he looks at what are the things that I've got blocked in that are not directly related to me achieving my goals. So as an example, um, you know, when we spoke, I think uh, he had noticed that there was, it was like a networking event over in Silicon Valley or something like that, that he was meant to be going to one evening. And he said, look, there's a chance that I might meet someone who wants to give us money or who you know, might, you know, might be able to access, you know, some more customers through or something like that. But it's not a direct relationship. It's it's not like him um, spending time, um, you know, writing code that, that solves an issue that has been a real pain point for customers, um, which would be, uh, you know, a, a direct relationship with his goals in terms of improving the customer experience to reduce churn. So he, he would define bullshit as anything that you've got scheduled in your diary that doesn't directly have an impact on the goals that you're focusing on. And so he just 
gets rid of it. What happens if there are other people involved? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. Like you're contributing to their goals. Um, Look, I think that is a question to ask, but I also think there does come a point where you do need to be a bit more selfish with your time. Like it it reminds me, uh, this isn't in the book because I learnt it after I'd submitted the final proofs, but uh, this is a tip that I got from Professor Katie Milkman, who wrote a great book called How to Change. So she's a professor at Wharton um, and specialises in behaviour change. And she told me that um, she had come across this research from uh, Professor Linda Babcock at Carnegie Mellon University. And the research was basically looking at uh, women were were basically more likely to say yes to what they called non-promotable tasks. So this is the researcher's name for it. And non-promotable tasks are things that you do because you're a good citizen, but they're not really going to help you get promoted or advance your career. So they might be things like, um, you know, sitting on the committee to plan the Christmas party uh, or, you know, um, you know, maybe uh, – helping someone with a presentation, maybe they want to rehearse it and you're happy to like sit and give them feedback. So things that are good to do and they make us feel good and, you know, they're about, you know, being a generous person, but they're not going to get us promoted. Women are far more likely to say yes to non-promotable tasks than men. What Katie learned is that Linda, as a result of this research, had started a no club. So she got together with a couple of peers, other um, business school professors, and they started a club where whenever uh, these women were presented with non-promotable tasks, like, you know, um, something that seemed like a good thing to do but wasn't necessarily going to advance their career, they would take that to the no club and the no club would give them a straight yes or no answer. And it's a really great way when you're a people pleaser and you struggle with saying no. And, you know, I would imagine that most listeners of this podcast um uh, are female and therefore probably say yes to too many non-promotable tasks. I love the idea of forming a no club. So Katie did the same thing herself and she frequently takes opportunities that pass her by, um, go, go to her desk and takes them to her no club and she's like, should I say yes or no? And the no club give her a really straight answer and she saved a lot of time and made better decisions because of that. It's a really interesting one. It just makes me think of Adam Grant's book, um, Give or Take, and how he speaks about one of the characteristics of successful people is that they are givers. But on the flip side, one of the characteristics of the lowest um, level of success are also givers. So it's kind of an interesting one. But how does Katie's research sort of reconcile with that? Would you say that successful givers are people that are giving or saying yes to promotable tasks, like it sort of seems a bit in conflict. I think what's important and and having, um, so I've had Adam actually on the podcast yeah. a couple of times and, and some of his tips feature in the book. And what Adam's response to that would be, because I did ask him that, uh, because he get, uh, gets asked to do a lot of things and being a giver is part of his brand. Um, he's really clear with, with making sure that the requests that he says yes to align with his values. So as an example, um, he gets asked for help from all sorts of people, uh, from students, from fellow staff members, from friends, uh, from family and so on. And so he created a hierarchy of who he wanted to help, who he valued. And at the top of that list were, uh, um, obviously, aside from his family, um, were students. 
he went into teaching um, because he's a professor at, at Wharton uh, to help students. Um, that's why he did it. And then he has a few other people uh, who he also prioritises, but he doesn't prioritise other staff members. He doesn't prioritise other professors if they ask for help. Like if he's got time, maybe he'll give it. But he said to me, like, I, I went into teaching to help students learn and, and grow and, um, you know, and, and reach their potential. I didn't become a professor to help other professors. So he's really clear on what he values and saying yes to things that align with his values as a giver. Is that something that you've also implemented in your own personal and work life, that same sort of framework? Yeah, definitely. I absolutely have. Um, I, I, I went through a stage where I was thinking a lot about emails and I get a lot of emails um, requesting my time from all sorts of people. And I, my default was actually just to delete. Um, like if, if I knew the person, I would respond. Uh, and, and, and sort of my default is generally to say no. Um, but then if I don't know the person, I would just delete it, which, which makes me sound like a terrible human being because I was deleting a lot of emails every day. Um, and then I, I interviewed Nigel Marsh, who, um, he, he had a very successful corporate career and then gave that up um, to, to sort of reprioritize his life. He wrote uh, a best-selling book called Fat, 40 and Fired and um, a couple of other books. And he did a great TED talk about work-life balance um, that's been viewed several million times. And Nigel's received a lot of um, emails as a result of being quite a successful author. Um, I think he said 30,000 oh <laughs> messages from readers, something like that. Um, and he said he responds to every single one because he feels it's really rude to just delete emails. And so I went through a stage where I started responding to every single email I received to try out Nigel's um, theory. But I I just thought in the end, like if someone firstly hasn't personalized the email um, and it's just a generic request, secondly, if they've done no research on me and I'm like and anyone could help them, anyone who, you know, I don't know, might be a business owner, for example, as opposed to me and my little niche, um, or they haven't bothered to spell my name correctly, which is a good little screen up because my name is Amantha. It's strange and autocorrect turns it into all sorts of things. Um, <laughs> then I just use those as uh, heuristics or shortcuts to go, I'm deleting this and I don't feel bad about that. Because if they haven't taken the time to at least spell my name correctly or do some research on who I am and why this is kind of, you know, a a, a good ask of my time because of my specific skill set, then I'm kind of like, this doesn't warrant my time responding. Yeah, I'm not sure if that fine. answered the question. That was like such a segue. Feel free to like edit that. <laughs> no, I, th I mean, I think it's interesting because I think a lot of us, A, like will strive for inbox zero, but B, you know, people that are people pleasing like myself and many women, you know, or recovering people pleasers, um, you know, it's, you feel bad and you sort of want to give people that respect. So I think, you know, hearing those sto that story is, is valuable because it sort of gives people permission to go, actually, you know what, if it's not valuable, it's not worth my time, then it's okay to delete. One of the concepts in the book that I loved that I thought was very relevant to our audience is this concept of the iceberg yes. So you wrote in the book, when we're deciding whether to do something, a project, a job, a volunteer role and so on, we tend to focus on the visible and exciting part. In other words, we focus on the glimmering peak of the iceberg that sits above the water. And 
it is so true and it was such a beautiful um expression of saying yes to something and not actually fully thinking through the work that's involved and I think it's quite common for entrepreneurs who experience shiny object syndrome all the time how common is this how common is this in you know amongst your clients like how common is it for people to say yes and not really consider what yes means I think it happens all the time and it certainly happens to me all the time, less so now since becoming aware of this um, idea. And that's another one from John Zaratsky actually um, of like when you're presented with this exciting opportunity and you're just focusing on, you know, like the, the glory that will come with, um, you know, getting to the end of this opportunity, uh, you know, whether that, you know, maybe that's like presenting at a high profile conference or sitting on um, a board or I don't know, something like that. Um, you actually forget about everything that sits under the surface, all the hard work and many, many hours that are also going to be associated with saying yes. And so certainly what I try to do when I am presented with something that seems like an exciting opportunity is I sit down and think, okay, how many hours work is that actually going to be to get to the exciting shiny part? And then I look at my diary. I'm like, have I got time? And how much do I really, really want to say yes to this thing, knowing that realistically it's going to be a hard slog to get there? And I've certainly had experiences, many, that I've said yes to and later regretted because I haven't thought about the iceberg yes principle. And I think it's interesting because it sort of illustrates this time tax. So, you know, you always think that something is going to be quicker and take less time than it actually takes. Everything takes longer than you think, especially in a small business. Oh, it does. It does. Yes, yes. Now, we need to remember the, the planning fallacy where we do underestimate how long things will take and typically by about 50%, um, mm. which is a big error to make. Um, I do find though, like a, a tip that I got, I got this one from Cal Newport, who's a professor at Georgetown and he wrote um, the book Deep Work, which I imagine some yeah. listeners might be familiar with uh, along with many other great books. Because um, we, we spoke about this when I first had him on How I Work many years ago. And and he said, look, the, the more you try to estimate time and the more you do time blocking or time boxing in your diary, which is essentially where you set meetings with yourself to work on, um, you know, deep, deep work tasks that don't require anyone else. They just require you. But, you know, he recommends diarizing that. And I'm a massive fan of time blocking. He says the more you do that, the better you get at estimating how long something takes. Um, so I've, I've definitely found that in my own life. Uh, like I like do a lot of writing, um, write for various places like Harvard Business Review, Forbes, AFR, and so on. I typically write about one article every week or two. And because I've been doing that for so many years now, I can accurately say how long an article will take to get to a crappy first draft. And then I can very accurately estimate how long it will take to do an edit and a proofread. And so I've gotten far better at blocking those out in my diary um, than I was before I started time blocking those activities. And I think that's true of anything. You just get practice at, you know, doing and then you have a pretty good idea of how long it will take in the future. 
I love the idea of time blocking and Caitlin and I actually do that in our business as well. But in our experience, we found that some of our sort of community, especially the more creative um, people, people who sort of thrive in an unstructured environment, find it quite tricky. Do you have advice for those sorts of people who structure and, you know, um, regimentation isn't their natural kind of way of being? People don't thrive in that sort of environment? I think that advice that does work for everyone, no matter whether you do want structure or not, is to work to your chronotype. So if you haven't come across the idea of a chronotype, um, this basically refers to the peaks and troughs in our energy over a 24-hour period. And I I do cover it um, relatively briefly in time-wise, but Essentially, there are three chronotypes that we can fall into, and this is underpinned by a a huge body of research. Um, So there are larks who are stereotypical morning people. So that represents about 16, 17% of the population. So if you wake at 5 or 6 a.m. without an alarm and you're just really happy to get your day started at that hour, you're probably a lark. Um, Larks are deeply annoying to owls who are at the other end of the continuum. They (laughs) come to life at night, ironically, when most offices and schools are closed. Um, Owls represent about one in five people. So, you know, if you've got a team or a business that has, you know, five or more people, chances are at least one of those people will be an owl. Um, And then the rest of us are middle birds. So we run on the schedule of a lark. So mornings are our best thinking time, just delayed by an hour or two. So if if you wake up at about sort of, you know, 7, 7.30, you know, give or take half an hour, um, you're probably a middle bird. So larks and middle birds, our best thinking happens in the morning before lunch. Larks are a little bit earlier with their peak. Um, Middle birds are a little bit closer sort of to mid-morning. Every chronotype has a dip after lunch, like in the early afternoon. So between the hours of, you know, roughly sort of one to three, they're pretty ordinary hours for most of us. Um, I mean, that is dependent also on like what we eat for lunch, Um, but it's pretty ordinary, really good time to be in our inbox doing um, more shallow work or less cognitively demanding work. Um, Then Lux Middlebirds will have a bit of a rebound in the afternoon, but that's when owls come to life. So. I think being aware of your chronotype, um, and I can send you a link for the show notes, um, uh, or, or Hannah, my assistant can, um, to, to have people assess their chronotype. I think knowing when your best energy periods are and aligning your workday around that, even just roughly, uh, can benefit anyone. It's an interesting challenge for leaders and employers with teams because not only are you trying to create a really high-functioning, amazing team with a diverse set of people with different chronotypes, but now we also potentially layer in remote work in different time zones. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's quite, you know, how do you how do you create a really high-functioning team in that kind of environment with such diversity when people's peaks and troughs are in completely different times of day? And, and times of the week even? Yeah, uh, it's it's a really good question. I get this question um, a lot from, from clients and businesses that we work with at Inventium. And 
like, I think one thing to think about is doing as much as possible asynchronously. So in a non-live way. So asynchronous communication is email, messages, working on collaborative documents like Google Docs or Google Sheets when people can be in it contributing at different times when suits them. Um, and really for activities that are done synchronously, so in a live way, like a meeting, or a phone call, video call, face-to-face, -face, whatever, um, really thinking deeply about does this need to be synchronous? Um, do we need a meeting for this? Um, there's, a, there's a great rule that I heard from Dropbox where they, uh, they talk about the only three reasons why you'd need a meeting. Um, and so it's their three Ds. It's to debate something. So where you want to debate an idea, um, uh, when you want to um, discuss something. Uh, so it might be like, you know, just like discuss a strategy document or something like that um, or decide. So make a decision. And I think like just being really clear for your business what are the things that warrant a meeting or synchronous communication? Because that's where you have to sync up the time zones and work in and out of people's chronotypes. Um, and what doesn't, like what can be done asynchronously is a very good place to start and a really important conversation to, to like to have as a leader. So everyone's on the same page. What do we do synchronously? What do we do asynchronously? I read, um, well, actually I think I was listening to a podcast with Jason, um, I think his name's Jason Freed, the founder of Basecamp. <clears throat> which is a tech startup. Well, it's not a startup anymore, but a tech <laughs> business. And he was talking about their no meeting policy and how every um, everything has to be written in a memo. And they actually hire based on people's writing ability because not only does it free up people's time, um, it also forces the person who needs to get a decision or is presenting something to really think through the problem. Because when you write a piece of communication that needs to be interpreted and understood by everyone. It forces you to think more clearly. And I loved that. I thought that was a really um, amazing approach because I think we do tend to like over meet, <laughs> just generally <laughs> speaking as a culture. Maybe not as much anymore because I feel like this conversation is being had, which is really great. Um, do you find that with your clients, like people are becoming more open to this way of working? Oh, 100% because I think we're all just meeting fatigued. And I mean, particularly when most meetings are still virtual because we are working hybrid, uh, you know, it's it's like it's so exhausting to be in back-to-back -back Zoom meetings. Like that is far more exhausting than being in back-to-back face-to-face meetings for, for various reasons. Um, but, yes, I think that that is being done more and more. Um, it's sort of, I, I guess I see varying levels of success. I think it's easier in a small business to create different norms around that. And certainly we've, um, you know, done a lot of thinking and made a lot of changes at Inventium over the last few years in terms of how we work as a business um and we, we've also had to because we do the four-day week um and have done the four-day week for the last two years and so that means you want to cut down on meetings because you don't want your precious four days that you're working to be littered with meetings so can you share a little bit more about those changes that you've implemented and what's 
what's worked and how you've managed to structure your business around a four-day week. Like, that's the dream. <laughs> it is. It, it is the dream. So, um, so for those unfamiliar with the four-day week in terms of how it works, what it means, it doesn't mean four really long days. It means that people, um, so full-time staff are paid their full-time salary, but they're only expected to work for normal length days. So for, you know, seven or eight hour days. Um, but they're expected that their, um, what they produce, like their productivity will be the equivalent of a full-time employee. And when we're doing our goal setting, which we, we use OKRs, objectives and key results, um, they're, they're built around you being a full-time employee. So we call the initiative gift of the fifth um, with the theory being that if you can get all your work done in four normal length days, Monday to Thursday, you get the, the gift of time on Friday to use it however you please. So we've been doing that now for over two years. It's been incredibly successful. Uh, not, not only did we improve productivity, which we were already very high performing because a large part of our business is training um, people in how to work more productively. So we're starting from a pretty high base, but we've um, also improved engagement and job satisfaction, energy levels. And again, all those things were pretty high to begin with, but um, they got even higher. So, uh, so one thing we do think about very carefully is meetings. We, people I would say would be reluctant to set a meeting just like impulsively. Like we really do ask ourselves, is this a meeting? Do we really need to meet for this? Or can we do it asynchronously where we're collaborating um, in a Google Doc, for example? Um, or which parts of this project do we need to meet for and which parts should we do asynchronously? So, um, you know, as an example, we uh, run various virtual masterclasses and we'll often pair up. Um, to, so to sort of like deliver it with, um, you know, another consultant and like the, the process of doing that, like you could imagine, well, you know, one way to do it is you just like block out a day together and you'd sit and nut out what's the content that you want to cover and who's going to do what and plan it all out. But we typically would, um, like oscillate between having a synchronous discussion. So a meeting to go, okay like what what's what's our aim let's just get clear on our purpose for this masterclass then uh then work out okay let's you do this i do this so let's maybe both go away and think about what are the best pieces of content that we think we could deliver let's um we call it shifting where we um shift from individual to group work um so we'll sort of both populate our thoughts into a Google Doc, then we'll meet again to make a decision about what we do and who's doing what, then we'll, um, you know, asynchronously work through that. And so it's kind of oscillating between that. And that's a typical process for us in Inventium. Um, another thing we do, just one other uh, quick thing and happy to sort of delve in deeper or move along, um, is that for every meeting that goes in the diary, it has what we call a PAO. So PAO stands for Purpose Agenda Outcomes. Um, and this is something, again, that we teach our clients and we say internally into our clients, no payo, no wayo. Like we do not come to meetings if there's no payo. <laughs> oh my God, payo. I love that. So that's in the calendar invite. So it's super clear yeah, for everybody what It's the in the description. Is. Exactly. And what it means is as someone setting meetings, like I will occasionally set meetings, um, is it really forces me to think through why are we meeting? Like what's the purpose? And is this purpose best suited to a meeting? 
what do I want to get through in terms of agenda and what do I want to leave this meeting with? And it's a really good exercise to go through if you have the goal to set a meeting and command other people's time for, you know, periods of like half an hour or an hour or longer. Um, I mean, that's a really big ask. And I think all meeting organisers and setters should take that responsibility very seriously. So what's your philosophy on like one-to-one whips with your staff members? Do you run those? Uh, we do have those. I think they're really important. That's probably where we're less strict with payos, although generally we um, there's a concept that I write about in TimeWise called the to discuss list, which is all about reducing back and forth email emails and just like polluting people's emails um, and inbox further. And with the people that you do meet with regularly, that you have a lot of communication with, instead of just sending them random emails all the time and discussing all this stuff over email, put it on a to discuss list where whenever something comes into your mind that would normally you just shoot off an email and interrupt their day, instead put it on a to discuss list. So typically like um, I will meet with my assistant, Hannah, uh, at least once a week, we both keep a to discuss list and we run through all the things that we need to get through and discuss um, in that meeting, which reduces a lot of emails between us. And do you have any other regular sort of cadence of meetings in your business or is it really lean? Uh, it's pretty lean. We do have a scheduled Monday all hands or all team meeting. Um, there is a payo for that. So there's a Google Sheets where people have to add to the agenda if they want to speak about something or bring something up. Um, and we're very clear this is not just an information sharing meeting, like information sharing can be done by email, but if you want to discuss something or get people's thoughts as a team, um, you know, or if there are, you know, big things that we want to celebrate as a team, for example, then that would go on the agenda. And um, Georgia, our general manager, will look at that Google sheet every Monday morning and basically make a call whether there's enough on it to warrant that team meeting. So, you know, even though it's there in the diary, that space is protected, we we don't just do it on autopilot. We do it if there's enough stuff that warrants that um, that getting together. Love that. It's so fascinating to hear how other people work. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that is the premise of your podcast, but how other people run their businesses and their systems and processes. It's really, really interesting. I want to expand on that a little bit, but talk about the process of writing your book, because I think that is a really, really interesting um an interesting thing to discuss. And also, you know, writing a book is a is a lot of work. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of energy. It's a big project. Um, it's a big goal. So I'm curious, how did you go about doing that? What was your process for writing the book? I was very methodical and structured about it, I would say. So I, um, once I signed the contract with Penguin Random House, my publisher, they basically say, how long do you want to write this book? And I thought six months seems like Ooh, a good amount of time, which I think fast. Is, so yeah, yeah, that did, did turn out to be that way. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'd say six months is on the quicker side of things. I think most authors maybe take closer to 12 months from what I've heard. Uh, but then and and I and they like and the book length is also in the contract. So I was contracted to write a book in six months that was sixty to seventy thousand words long, and uh, I had when I pitched the idea 
idea, I had written quite a lengthy book proposal that outlined what the book would look like in quite a bit of detail. So I knew what the book was going to be all about. Uh, I didn't quite know how it was going to be structured. I had an idea, but I did know that it was going to be full of, um, you know, like the best tips and strategies that I'd learned from the How I Work podcast. So I... I kind of, I divided my time quite mathematically. I thought, okay, well, I work backwards from the final deadline and I literally had a calendar that um, I I stuck on my wall and I worked backwards with things like word count deadlines and um, deadlines like for doing final proofreading and edits before I submitted the manuscript. Um, so it's very, very methodical. On a day-to-day basis, I was typically like my daily ritual, which I, I did write generally five days a week, sometimes six days a week, I would, it was the very first thing I did. So before I checked email or um, did anything else that was reactive, I had to write, I had to my writing target, which was typically around a thousand words a day, thereabouts. And i generally would plan what I was going to be writing so that when I sat at my computer, I'd be ready to go. I wouldn't like procrastinate around, oh, what chapter should I work on today? So tried to sort of minimize um, sort of distractions and procrastinations. And I had a rough plan of what I was going to write. And then I would just write. So I I use um, software called Scrivener, which is quite common software used with writers. And um, and yeah, and I typically write one or two chapters a day. Uh, I got some great advice from um, Greg McEwen, who wrote Essentialism and Effortless and is uh, one of my favourite writers. And he said, like, think about what are your upper and lower bounds because you don't want to just write all day. Like you couldn't. You couldn't write all day and produce quality writing and you will just burn out very quickly. Um, but likewise, you don't want to have a day where, you know, you achieve nothing because that doesn't feel very good. So he um, spoke to me about setting upper and lower bounds. And so my lower bound was was like 500 words. And I find it pretty easy to write 500 words. I don't have to be quality words, just 500 words written. And then my upper bound was about 2,000 words, which some days I did hit. Um, and uh, But, you know, really I probably averaged at about 1,000 words a day. So I had sort of my upper and lower limits to manage my own energy. And also the reality was it's like, it's not time. It's not like I became a full-time writer for six months. Like I was still working at Inventium, doing the podcast, you know, doing, you know, consulting and all the sorts of things that I do for my day job. So it was balancing it all. So yeah, it was busy, but it, it wasn't exhausting. I like the idea of sort of getting up and doing it first thing before you check email, before you do anything. I th- I think I've referred, heard someone refer to those hours as like the peak hours of the day, the clearest hours, so do the deepest and the hardest work at that time. Were there days where you were just like, oh, I just really don't have the energy or the creativity <laughs> to apply myself? And like, how did you how did you kind of push through that? Was it just a case of like just writing whatever, like just getting into the practice of writing? Yes. So it was, I find it quite good to um, have non-negotiables and and I've heard various guests on on um how I work talk about this like uh I have I've had Mia Friedman on a couple of times and she talks about how she 
exercises every day. And the reason why she does it every day as opposed to, say, three times a week is because exercise for her is a non-negotiable, particularly with her mental health. And she doesn't wake up in the morning and have to ask herself, do I feel like exercising? Have I got enough energy? Should I exercise? It's like, this is what I do. I do it every day. And so for me, the book writing, even though I wasn't doing it every day, um, and that was deliberate, every every work day, so to speak, um, it's like, well, that was that's just what I have to do. So it makes it a lot easier to not procrastinate with yourself um, when it's just like, this is just what I do. It's like not brushing my teeth. It would feel weird. And yes, often I don't feel like brushing my teeth, but I do it anyway. And there were many days where I didn't feel like writing, but I did it anyway. And I found once I just did 10 minutes of it, I, I was kind of, you know, back into flow and it was a bit easier. Sometimes just the getting started was the hard bit. How important was research in terms of preparing for your book, I guess a lot of the research or would have been pulled from your podcast and those anecdotes and those examples. Was there a period of time that you spent actually researching and pulling together all of that existing content that sort of laid the foundation for the book to be written? That was largely done at the beginning where I went back through many episodes. I mean, there were many tips that had just stuck in my mind and things that had just become part of my life and it had a really big impact on me. So they were easy selections for the book. But then there was a lot of listening and reading through transcripts and trying to decide on like what were the absolute gems of tips, like, you know, the, the literally thousands that I could have chosen from. And I think there are about a hundred or so in the book. Um, so I did, I did most of that upfront. I did about 80% of that upfront because I wanted to have some space where once I themed the book and organized those tips into different um, like themes or categories, if you like, which I did about halfway through the process, I wanted to have some space to go, okay, I need to flesh out this category a little bit more, like, you know, this category of, um, you know, prioritization, for example. So, yes, so I did a lot of that up front. Um, but also I wanted quite a few of the tips that I was sharing to be underpinned by science. Um, that's very much core to my brand in terms of, um, you know, being a scientist, being a psychologist, someone that doesn't like just giving advice just because someone reckons you should do it. Like I want to understand what's the research to underpin this. And so a lot of the things um, I'd say there's not overkill in terms of science and that was a deliberate decision um, that I made with my editor, but certainly there are a lot of research studies that are referenced in the book to back up the different strategies that are in there. And so that definitely um, took a bit of time, but again, like I, because I read research as part of my job, like there's, you know, I kind of remember lots of research. And so, yeah, the, uh, the, for, uh, compared to a normal book, I'd say the research process was less time consuming because, you know, it, it, was, it was coming from the podcast. What has been or which strategy or piece of advice that you've implemented has had the biggest impact on your life and on your work? Oh, I would say... Um, it is hard to imagine not structuring my day to align with my chronotype, which I would say pre-COVID was lark-ish and now is probably more middle bird um, and time blocking. 
like those two things, which I've now been using for years, are like totally transformed how how I how I work. Um, a more recent one that is not in the book, um, but is from one of my favourite guests, Laura May Martin, who's Google's executive productivity advisor. Um, I've had her on a couple of times, and her job is basically to advise executives at Google how to be more productive. Um, she thinks a lot about emails and inbox, and there's some great tips in in TimeWise about managing your inbox from Laura. But something she told me recently um, is. She said, like, a lot of people will say, just check your email three times a day. Um, and certainly there's research to back up that you will feel happier and you'll be more productive if you do that. But that is not realistic for most people, I would say. So she said instead, just make sure that there's at least an hour or two block in your diary, maybe once or twice a day, where you just close down your email. And I thought, hmm, that's great. And so I try to do that. So I typically won't have my email open in the morning when I'm doing my deep work. Um, it is typically open for a lot of the afternoon, but I feel it. Like I feel my productivity and my focus just go all over the place. Such a simple tip, but sometimes it's the simple things that make the biggest difference. Absolutely. So we have one final question. Um, it's a big one. What do you believe is the key to fulfilment? Mm. I I think it is being really conscious with how we use our time. Like I don't think it's about being more productive. I don't think it's about trying to fit more into our days, but I think it is being conscious of how you're allocating the hours that you do have in your day and and really thinking does how I'm using the hours that I have align with what matters to me. There was a lot of gold in that episode, but I think the biggest takeaway for me was really about working according to your chronotype. So if you're somebody who does your best work as soon as you're up in the morning, then allocate that time for your deep work, for your focused work to move your business forward. If you're somebody who does your best work after dinner at night, once everyone's gone to bed, then carve out time to do your deep focused work then. And as Amantha said, the way to apply this as part of a team is to have a shared understanding about which work is synchronous work, i.e. work that needs to be done as part of a meeting live versus the type of work that is asynchronous, or you might have heard this referred to as async work, that is work that doesn't necessarily need to be done by everybody at the same time, but can be done when it best suits each individual. And Again, as Amantha said, live documents like Google Docs, Google Drive make collaborative async work really, really effective. That's it from us. We hope you enjoyed this slightly different episode. If you did, please leave us a review. They really, really help with growing the show. And please press follow on Apple or Spotify so you never miss an upcoming episode.